Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield account. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI endeavors reinforcing concerns about inflation. The financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon Samzell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Inflation easing, odds of a European recession dropping, and North America coming together. Maybe just a gleam of optimism for the new year. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, special contributor Larry Summers on whether we're seeing light at the end of the inflation tunnel or a false dawn. If you think about it, the good news was inflation running in the sixes. That's still inconceivably high. Former IBM CEO Sam Palmasano on CEOs facing a very different world. Do what's necessary to maintain strategic growth and drive productivity at the same time. And economist Melissa Carney of the University of Maryland on what declining births in the United States could mean for economic growth. You have fewer people of working age. More worryingly, it could mean lower GDP per capita. Maybe it was just the promise of a new year, or maybe, just maybe, things really are starting to look a little bit better. As the leaders of the three nations of North America gathered in Mexico City this week and sought cooperation on a host of issues. Above all, we both committed to pursuing a better future, one grounded on peace and prosperity for all of our people. We're at one of those inflection points where what we do in the next several years is going to determine what the world looks like for the next two, three, four decades. In Europe, odds of recession are dropping, at least according to the Belgian prime minister. If you look at the, the economic indicators, um, indeed, uh, the fear for recession 
is, is diminishing, um, and there are good reasons for that. And in the United States, inflation signals reinforce what we thought we saw at the end of last year. Inflation may, just may, be truly coming back down. A month-over-month -month, uh, CPI print negative. This number was bang on the screws. Inflation has clearly peaked. When he finally got the job, Speaker Kevin McCarthy got off to a surprisingly bipartisan start, with the House almost unanimous in approving a new select committee to look into threats posed by China. We know that China right now is what would be called our pacing threat. This is something not just from a military perspective, but also from an economic perspective that we've seen our vulnerabilities, particularly over the last couple of years. Though things weren't quite as smooth for all the other lawmakers as the new Republican member from Long Island, George Santos, faces a range of investigations and growing calls for him to step aside, including from Republicans. On behalf of the Nassau County Republican Committee, I am calling for his immediate resignation. We must call for the resignation of Congressman George Santos. Calling for George Santos to resign. Calling on George Santos to resign. Demand that George Santos steps down. Calling him to step aside. He should resign. My office will have no interaction with George Santos or his staff until he resigns. In the end, the markets this week saw the half-full part of the glass, with the S&P 500 gaining 2.7% for the week, and the Nasdaq up 4.8%, while bonds strengthened as well, with the yield on the 10-year down six basis points, ending at just about 3.5%. Take us through the week in the numbers. Welcome now, Afsani Bechla, CEO of Rock Creek, and David Bianco, DWS Group CIO for the Americas. So welcome back, both of you. It's good to have you here. David, let me start with you. CPI numbers encouraging inflation. Is that what's driving the markets right now? It is. Um, and we knew that going into the week that investors would be focused on the inflation report. There were whispers that the inflation report would surprise to the downside. It didn't. It came banging on target. Um, but it confirms that inflation is continuing to come down. However, the battle's not over. And I think investors should, and certainly the Fed will likely stay focused on the labor market. And we still see wages really running red hot. So the inflation fight's not over. We probably have a few more hikes ahead of about 25 basis points. Oh, that's interesting. I'm signing a few more hikes ahead. The question for me is, it may not be over, but how close is it to being over? What do you think the Fed's going to think when they meet at the beginning of February? I think the Fed is uh, still trying to remain relatively hawkish, and um, and as David said, uh, pretty sure they will do that uh, 25 basis points in their next meeting. They are looking, as he said, um, at the employment numbers really carefully, and um, and also, of course, at uh, earnings reports that are coming out as we speak. So. So I think those two items will be important. Uh, wage growth is starting to show a little bit of uh, maybe a softening. We're seeing people starting to talk about laying off in certain sectors like finance and technology. So I think all of that will factor into the next uh, conversation about rate hikes. So, so David, we're all focused on the Fed and we will be for some time to come. But I know you think that we also should be looking at other parts of Washington that may actually be affecting the investment criteria right now. And what, what should we be focusing on as we go into 2023? 
Well, well, there's a lot of things going on. So with inflation, I would argue the, the near-term focus really should be on the labor market. We do have disinflation on goods, and we've had some on commodities, but the disinflation on goods is because we are entering a goods consumption and goods production uh, recession. And I think we'll hear more about that during earnings season. So in the near term, stay focused on the labor market for where inflation goes, what the Fed needs to do about it. But longer term, yes, I agree that the longer term inflation outlook has a lot to do with policies, both at home and worldwide, but policies that relate to how well we spend, what type of return on investment we get on things like energy, energy transition, um, even defense, and so on and so forth. So, Sonny, when we hear energy, we think of you necessarily. You've had a lot of your career tied up with energy. You studied it, as I recall, at Oxford as well. Tell us about the federal policies right now in energy, how they may be affecting some investment decisions. The interesting thing is, obviously, when we talk about um, about policymakers, we think about the uh, Inflation Act. But just before we go there, I think what's interesting is the concentration of uh, of the market has been on what the Fed is doing. And what is interesting is President Biden and um, and his team have been equally focused on removing some of the supply chain problems. We saw what they did with, uh, for example, the uh, the trains uh, unions. Um, we saw that, uh, for example, the energy reserves that were released, and uh, and and were one of uh, that was one of the reasons that gas prices are where they are, among other reasons, of course. So government has been much more proactive uh, when it comes to different areas, but in uh, terms of its policies, but particularly when it comes to energy, and um, and I think it has quietly been quite effective in uh, keeping energy prices down. We've seen, by the way similar things in Germany. And um, then coming back to the IRA, of course, that is huge because there's the direct uh, impact of the IRA, which is, uh, you know, over 300 billion. But there's also the leverage impact in the sense that we're seeing already a lot of private sector deals happening, uh, whether you look at big private equity firms that are doing very large projects, uh, people investing in um, in clean energy, but also in things like LNG terminals to uh, for the for the short term. And then last but not least, least, um, venture firms are looking at uh, uh, hydrogen projects because they're seeing again with the IRA that there is potential for some of these investments that are longer term investments. So, so David, when we talk about energy, we have I mean, two sides of the house. One is the fossil fuel side. And there's a question of that. The release from the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, certainly affected that. But you also have investment decisions like Ioneer now is something like a $700 million loan from the Department of Energy tied to that investment inflation reduction act. So as an investor, what should we be looking at? As an investor, what you want to do is look at the prospects for return on capital. And uh, we would expect that there'll be a lot of investment spending through government programs like the Inflation Reduction Act, but the CHIPS Act, investment spending that's done by the energy sector, the alternative energy sector, the electric vehicle sector, the utility space, uh, semiconductors. But the question that investors have is what's the return on investment going to be? And certain industries have a history of producing uh, poor returns on investment, uh, energy, auto, uh, and, I, and, and others have, have done better or at least or regulated like utilities. So we do expect a lot of investment spending to come in this space. We have yet to really figure out, will this be good for investors and what type of, type of return on investment we will get? I'll uh, ask you the most basic question. When it comes to the green energy area that now is going to get some subsidy from the U.S. government, is that inflationary or deflationary? 
depends on you know how if if it brings down total energy prices that would be obviously um, not inflationary right um, in the meantime if you say that is creating by some accounts nine million new jobs over time of course over a long period of time you could say that that could uh, have an impact on people having a, you know larger uh, ability to to spend and consume but I think that's much longer term I think in the short run if it starts bringing down the cost overall cost of energy that is good in terms of our worries about inflation. David Bianco of DWS Group. Thank you so much, David, for being back with us. Coming up, fertility rates are declining in the United States and don't appear likely to come back. We'll talk to Melissa Carney of the University of Maryland about why this is and what could it could mean for investors. And this is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Your first in-depth look at global market and business news. We have one big item of corporate news to tell you about this morning. Karen Moscow. In Europe, equities are falling hard. Nathan Hager. The Federal Reserve may have to unleash even further tightening. Bloomberg Daybreak. One Wall Street firm sees more pain ahead for investors. Wake up with us. Weekday mornings at 5 Eastern. Another roller coaster ride in yesterday's session. On Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Business app, and BloombergRadio.com. Seeing through the eyes of experts gives you a better view. Can we both give ourselves boosters and make sure the rest of the world gets vaccinated? And at Bloomberg, our market vision is 2020. So let's talk about the pain trade. I am shocked by the moves that we're seeing in the rates market. The inflation debate continues. Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Business App, and BloombergRadio.com. 
When Paul Sweeney and Matt Miller bring you the day's market news. How do you think investors should view Bitcoin? You can count on some frivolity. Matt, did you know that you and I are special? I feel special. Bloomberg Markets. Extensive, essential, and endlessly entertaining. I didn't know you had a trainer. Well, no. I hired the guy, and then we started hanging out for beers. We don't really work That's out. Not training. Now we're just buddies. <laughs> Weekday mornings at 10 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Business app, and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Every year, the Aspen Economic Strategy Group comes out with a monograph describing the state of the economy and, most importantly, what are the big issues that we face. They've just come out with their most recent edition. And we welcome now the director of that group. She is Melissa Carney. She's professor of economics at the University of Maryland. So, Melissa, thank you so much for being back on Wall Street Week. Uh, this is a fascinating report from beginning to end, but particularly I'm interested in the part you authored, which has to do with fertility rates in the United States and what that could do for economic growth. First of all, give us a sense of where we are on utility, fertility rates in the United States and whether this is a temporary thing or it may take care of itself. Sure. So the U.S. fertility rate has plummeted for the past 15 years. And so the problem here is that now we are at a level of fertility in this country that is below replacement level, meaning without immigration, the population um, will not uh, maintain our size. And so what's been happening is for uh, 15 years, annual birth rates have gone down. And now we're at a point where the average number of children born to a woman in the U.S. is substantially below the sort of magic number of 2.1 that would keep us at replacement population level. It's now 1.67. My look at the data suggests that it's unlikely to turn around anytime soon. So what we've really seen is that the decrease in births is very widespread. It's coming from across demographic groups. It's coming across the country. It doesn't seem to be driven by any sort of sharp policy or economic change in the past 15 years. Rather, it seems to reflect more recent cohorts of young adults having fewer children uh, or remaining childless more often than cohorts in the previous past. Um, and so this suggests that there's been a general trend away from having children, from having multiple children. And if we look to other high-income countries that have been right. dealing with this for decades, it's, it's probably going to be stubbornly low. That's my best guess. So, Professor, here on Wall Street Week, we speak to investors in particular. What are the possible consequences of that in terms of economic growth? Because really, we have to depend upon future economic growth. What is that decline in particular likely to do to us? The decline in birth rates has meant a decline in population growth. And the most immediate effect of this is likely to be a, sh a shrinking size of the working age population. So the working age population in the US has been stagnant for, for over a decade now. And given the decrease in birth rates we've been experiencing for the past 15 years, in the not too distant future, again, absent an increase in immigration, we're simply going to have fewer people of working age. Now, that, that's consequential both in a fiscal sense, meaning that it's going to put fiscal pressures on our social, social security system, funding for Medicare, uh, disability insurance, but it also, it also poses economic headwinds in the sense that you have fewer people of working age, and that doesn't 
necessarily just mean fewer people to produce stuff, uh, lower, economic out, uh, lower economic activity overall. More worryingly, it could mean lower GDP per capita or a reduction in, in productivity per person, a reduction in living standards. Which could have profound effects, obviously, on investment, uh, particularly in the United States. So what can we do about it? Can we get uh, that fertility rate back up or do we have to find a workaround? Yeah, so here's where I think we can draw lessons from um, other high-income countries, Japan, UK, Canada, other countries in, in Europe, including Scandinavian countries, um, that have been dealing with below replacement level fertility for many decades. You know, the first thing I would note is that despite efforts to turn things around, fertility has remained below replacement level in those countries uh, for many decades. A lot of those places have implemented explicitly pro-natalist policies, things like baby bonuses or child tax credits, expanded parental leave, expanded subsidies for childcare, all things that should make the cost of having children lower um, or the ability to combine work and kids easier. And yet the evidence from those kinds of incremental policies is that they might lead to some modest increase in birth rates in the short run in particular, perhaps not persistently, but nothing of the size that we would need to really lead to a dramatic reversal of the decline in fertility or the stubbornly low fertility rates um, anytime soon. So you know that suggests that it would be hard to turn things around. And again, because it looks like what we're seeing is really just a, a move away from having children or having multiple children as opposed to any sort of temporary response to some to some you know discrete change suggests that it's going to be really hard to turn the fertility rate around. So where does that leave us? Well, the obvious thing is to think about increasing immigration. Now, easier said than done in this country. Congress has been sort of derelict when it comes to immigration reform for far too long now. But given these demographic trends, the imperative for immigration reform, for allowing more people to legally enter or stay in the country, becomes that much stronger. And and there's lots of sensible reforms, uh, reform proposals out there, ways we could do this. We could certainly have more of an employment-driven immigration system where, you know, like other countries do, including Canada, where we allow more people in who, who are reasonably uh, likely to contribute right away to our economic productivity. Um, we could also increase per country caps on the number of uh, family members who are allowed to immigrate uh, to the country or stay in the country. Beyond immigration, of course, um, again, these demographic headwinds emphasize the need for policies and conditions that promote innovation and productivity growth. Easier said than done, though recent spending bills in Congress aimed at investments in infrastructure, increases in spending on scientific development. All of those are encouraging. All of those are steps in the right direction. But getting innovation policy right is very hard. Uh, and, it's, and it's about, it will require a lot more than just spending. Um, it requires having the conditions in place for competitive uh, companies um, and innovators to flourish and thrive. This is something that we take up in our in our report that you mentioned. Um, and of course, it, it will require a lot of investment in talent, not just importing global talent through more immigration, but also really building the talent pool um, among our native 
foreign population here in the U.S. That report is from the Aspen Economic Strategy Group, and I really highly recommend it. It's fascinating reading. It's really terribly important. Thank you so much for sharing it with us today. That's Melissa Carney. She's professor of economics at the University of Maryland. And we're going to continue this discussion about changes, fundamental changes that will affect the, the plight of CEOs particularly. We're going to talk to Sam Palmisano, the former chairman and CEO of IBM, about how the paradigm has shifted for the average American CEO. That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David West, and we're joined once again by our very special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, great to have you back with us. And there's a lot of good news this week, I must say. Reopening of China. We've got a warmer winter than expected in Europe. Maybe not a recession over there. In the United States, inflation numbers are coming down. Are you rethinking some of what you said in the past about the likelihood of recession? I think it is uh, good news. And the evidence that there's been some wage restraint is part of uh, the good part of the part of the good news, but at the same time, I think one has to be careful of uh, false dawns. And if you think about it, the good news was inflation running in the sixes, and that's still inconceivably high by the standards of two or three years ago. So I would stick with my view that a recession this year is more likely uh, than not. But certainly, looking at some of these trends, one has to think that uh, the Fed's job is much, much closer to being done, feels much, much closer to being done in terms of disinflation than it did uh, a few months ago. And I think the more optimistic possibilities, while they still would not be my bet, look more plausible today uh, than they did several months ago. And that's uh, got to be encouraging. We'll have to be watching the data very, very closely. And the most important day of this month, by far, from a macroeconomic point of view, will be the last day of the month when the employment cost index uh, comes out. That's the gold standard measure of labor costs and wage pressure. And that's a number they'll be studying very, very closely at the Fed and I suspect on Wall Street. And I'll certainly be up early that morning uh, to get that number. Uh, so right after that, actually early in February, we're going to have the meeting of the Federal Reserve. Uh, given where we are right now, and it's always data dependent, should they at least be talking about a pause, if not in February, coming after that? I think we're still not quite at uh, that point. Uh, I don't think a pause in February would be uh, well advised, and I don't think we have to make a definite decision uh, beyond that, beyond February uh, for uh, right now. Again, I think the most important thing is to make sure that the job of containing inflation uh, gets uh, done and that they preserve uh, their uh, credibility. So I think it's a little bit premature at uh, this point to be thinking about pausing, but we're getting much closer to that day. Larry, another big story this week had to deal with air traffic in the United States as we had to ground all the airplanes because of an apparent problem with the FAA system. This is something you've referred to in the past, actually, some doubts about the system. Does this raise larger questions about the systems we have in the government, at the FAA and perhaps other places as well, like the IRS, and the need for investment? 
Look, I think it refers to two things, David. I think it refers to the quantity of resources that we invest, and it refers to the competence uh, with which we invest. Something is wrong when tens of millions of returns sit opened at the IRS. Something is wrong when the IRS opens the phone, answers the phone less than a fifth of the time. Something is wrong when these kinds of fiascos happen with our air traffic control system. Some of this is we just don't invest the resources that we need. Look, I'm not enough of an expert to exactly be able to compare the information technology challenges that an institution like the IRS receiving billions of forms uh, each year has with the information technology faced by a large bank like JP Morgan. But it feels very wrong to me that the IRS's IT budget is only three and a half percent of that of uh, JP Morgan. Larry, thank you so much for being back with us. That is our very special contributor here at Wall Street Week. He's Larry Summers of Harvard. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. This is 
Wall Street Week. I'm David West, and we're joined once again by our very special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, great to have you back with us. And there's a lot of good news this week, I must say. Reopening of China. We've got a warmer winter than expected in Europe. Maybe not a recession over there. In the United States, inflation numbers are coming down. Are you rethinking some of what you said in the past about the likelihood of recession? I think it is uh, good news, and the evidence that there's been some wage restraint is part of uh, the good part of the part of the good news, but at the same time, I think one has to be careful of uh, false dawns. And if you think about it, the good news was inflation running in the sixes, and that's still inconceivably high by the standards of two or three years ago. So I would stick with my view that a recession this year is more likely uh, than not. But certainly, looking at some of these trends, one has to think that uh, the Fed's job is much, much closer to being done, feels much, much closer to being done in terms of disinflation than it did uh, a few months ago. And I think the more optimistic possibilities, while they still would not be my bet, look more plausible today uh, than they did several months ago. And that's uh, got to be encouraging. We'll have to be watching the data very, very closely. And the most important day of this month by far, from a macroeconomic point of view, will be the last day of the month when the employment cost index uh, comes out. That's the gold standard measure of labor costs and wage pressure. And that's a number they'll be studying very, very closely at the Fed and I suspect on Wall Street. And I'll certainly be up early that morning uh, to get that number. Uh, so right after that, actually early in February, we're going to have the meeting of the Federal Reserve. Uh, given where we are right now, and it's always data dependent, should they at least be talking about a pause, if not in February, coming after that? I think we're still not quite at uh, that point. Uh, I don't think a pause in February would be uh, well advised, and I don't think we have to make a definite decision uh, Beyond, beyond February uh, for uh, right now. Again, I think the most important thing is to make sure that the job of containing inflation uh, gets uh, done and that they preserve uh, their uh, credibility. So I think it's a little bit premature at uh, this point to be thinking about pausing, but we're getting much closer to that day. Larry, another big story this week had to deal with air traffic in the United States as we had to ground all the airplanes because of an apparent problem with the FAA system. This is something you've referred to in the past, actually, some doubts about the system. Does this raise larger questions about the systems we have in the government, at the FAA and perhaps other places as well, like the IRS, and the need for investment? Look, I think it refers to two things, David. I think it refers to the quantity of resources that we invest, and it refers to the competence uh, with which we invest. Something is wrong when tens of millions of returns sit opened at the IRS. Something is wrong when the IRS opens the phone, answers the phone less than a fifth of the time. Something is wrong when these kinds of fiascos happen with our air traffic control system. Some of this is we just don't invest the resources that we need. Look, I'm not enough of an expert 
to exactly be able to compare the information technology challenges that an institution like the IRS receiving billions of forms uh, each year has with the information technology faced by a large bank like JP Morgan. But it feels very wrong to me that the IRS's IT budget is only three and a half percent of that of uh, JP Morgan. Larry, thank you so much for being back with us. That is our very special contributor here at Wall Street Week. He's Larry Summers of Harvard. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.